tells a story about when I got married, the day before the wedding, around five o'clock before the rehearsal dinner, I handed her my phone and I said, I bequeath this to you. I'm done planning anything. I'll have nothing to do right now, but be pampered and have fun and get married. So if anything, anybody has any questions or you need to make stuff work like Tim Gunn, you make it work. I'm out. <laughs> you know, yeah. people, were, people were calling my phone going, so where's the church? And it's like, oh my why are you calling the bride? You're like, Literally, I'm the bride. Yeah. I tell you nothing. You get that. That's a... Uh, Willy Wonka, G, uh, Gene Wilder uh, gifts. Yes, yes, nothing. Yes. Get nothing. Good day, sir. Yeah, that's how I felt. I said good moment. day to you. I said good day. <laughs> yes, that's how that's how I feel. And so at the funeral, I had people who took over and just showed up and did stuff. And they were like, "She's not going to care if she does. Who cares? We did it." <laughs> I was like, "You're yeah. very right yeah. about that." Because the only thing I wanted was my husband back, and they couldn't do that. If you couldn't pull that off, I don't really yeah. care. Hello, friends. My name is Lisa Kiefoffer, and I'm on a mission to change the narratives of grief, one conversation at a time. I'm so glad you're joining me today. Welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. In today's episode, I'm talking with fellow widow Leslie Gray Streeter. I became a huge fan when I first read her book, Black Widow, a sad, funny journey through grief for people who normally avoid books with words like journey in the title. Now I'm grateful to call her a friend, too. I am Leslie Gray Streeter. I am a journalist and an author. I'm a columnist for the Palm Beach Post, and I am the author of Black Widow, a sad, funny journey through grief for people who normally avoid books with words like journey in the title. They came out in March. Hi, Leslie. Thank you so much for joining me on Grief is a Sneaky Bitch today. I am so excited that you're here. Oh, thank you so much. So our listeners already just heard the name of your book, Black Widow, A Sad, Funny Journey Through Grief for People Who Normally Avoid Books with Words Like Journey in the Title. And I legit laughed out loud when I came across this title. And I was like, this is my person. This is my woman. I've got to read the book. And what's so funny, we wanted the uh, subtitles are hard. Yeah. Because titles in all are hard. We went through two or three, but it was hard to find a subtitle that was not a thousand words long and that said what I needed it to say, which is that it is both sad and funny and it's not super depressing and it's not like a rainbow unicorn, you know, <laughs> deep, deeply solemn and serious treaties and steps by steps to recover from grief. It's none of that stuff because I don't know how to do that. So I opted, honestly, it had to be 87 words long. And at first I was like, I know this is too long. And my editor was like, no, that's funny. Yes. And the, public, the publicity people were like, no, we love it because it says exactly what it is and what it's not. And I went, okay, great. So, Good. I get to be me in my book. Yes. I loved it. Just from the very beginning, because at first, you know, you didn't want to be like, you know, anything that, you know, you could imagine walking through the, um, walk, walking through a cornfield, you know, as, you know, Eva Cassidy plays solemnly in the background or something. I didn't want that because that's not who I am, you know? So 
That's perfect. I love everything about that. My listeners and the folks that uh, follow me on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and everywhere at Reimagining Grief will know that I devoured your book in about two days and kept posting nonstop quotes and pictures of the book. So I am so absolutely honored that you are joining me on the show and also that we got to spend some time last week Mm -hmm. talking and getting to know each other and um, having some girl time talking about all of our shared uh, experiences of being being widows in the world and adoptive mothers we have in common as well. Yeah. And I love that too. There's nothing like being with your people. And I think I said this to you last week, you know, in this time, not only promoting the book, but in this time of, of national and international grief and oh my gosh, where are we and what are we doing? Um, I get basically two types of interview requests. One are, you know, the outside people who are like explain to us how we you have experience in grief and how to recover from it, explain to everyone how to do this. And then there are the ones that I love, which are people like you who get it. And so I don't have to, I can take my shoes off. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't have to like explain it to them. And like, so when you lose someone, we're like, all right, let's do this. You know, um, cause we've been there, even though all of our losses are different and loss and grief are complex and, um, and unique, there's still a sense that we understand having that bottom drop out of your life and the ways to get back to some sense of whatever normalcy is supposed to be, I think are very similar in a lot of ways. And it starts with understanding that something crappy happened to you and admitting it. Um, and, and then you go from there. As- yeah. And naming it as grief. And I absolutely agree. I've, it's interesting. It's, it'll be almost nine years since I lost mm-hmm. my husband and then five since I lost um, my good friend, Joe, but I haven't, um, had that much interaction with other widows and it's you're exactly right that whether you meet anybody who's experienced loss there's a unspoken language there's a shared experience between you that you get to start i'll say like you get to start two chapters into the book yeah exactly right you don't have to kind of start with like the foreword and the explanation and your bio description and all that stuff you get to like jump into the meaty part of a conversation absolutely um and that's exactly how I felt. I mean, it's how I felt reading your book, but it's definitely Thank how you. I felt when we spent um, that time together last week talking. It was like we mm-hmm. got to jump into the good stuff exactly. uh, from the stupid stuff people say, which we're going to talk about a little bit oh, today, yeah. oh, right yeah. in your book, to just the complex, as you said, experience of the way, frankly, grief is a sneaky bitch sometimes. So Yeah, it is. Yeah, exactly. Well, we're definitely going to spend some time today getting to know you and so our listeners can get to know you. Um, and by the end of this podcast, I know for sure everybody's going to run out and buy a copy of your book. Please and do. I would, and I would like to just take this moment to say, please do not go to Amazon.com and buy a copy of this book. Please find a Black-owned bookstore Thank you. nationally or in your local community and order it, which is what I did. Thank um, you. To support other businesses and to support Leslie's book, Becoming a National Bestseller, which I know it's... I'm hoping. And here's the thing. And if if you, I would love you to find a black owned bookstore. However, if there's a bookstore in your community, exactly. An indie bookstore that is struggling. Um, I have no problems with you buying it there too, because we are indie booksellers. I'd love you to support black booksellers, but if you can't, or there's like, you walk past Joe, the bookseller every day and he's there, you're like, I should buy a book from Joe. Buy a book from Joe. Joe needs the money more than Amazon does. 
So a- amen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we're going to explore your book a little bit today. And I wish this was a video podcast sometimes because I could show you that I'm holding the very already worn copy of the book that Love has it. sticky notes and highlights and everything in it. Um, but before we kind of get to know your story, your story um, of your loss of Scott and your journey to write this book, I would love to start where I start with all of my guests. And that's to ask you uh, the question that is, what is your earliest memory of grief? And when you think about that time, tell us a little bit about how were the adults in your life modeling grief in terms of their words and behaviors and emotions? And what do you think that early experience of grief taught you about both positively or negatively about what grief could or should look like when you were suddenly faced with the loss of your husband, Scott? My earliest memory, I was probably five. um, And it was there, these two funerals seemed to come hand in hand. But one was my great grandfather who I knew as a kid and he was very funny and my mother had told me great things about him. So he died, I think, when I was in kindergarten. And at some point around there, there was a little girl who'd been ill, who was younger than me, who died. And so I remember both experiences in snatches. But I do remember that like, my grandfather was an old man. So even though everyone was very sad, it was expected. This little girl who had been sick her whole life, it was very, she'd been sick for a while. And I remember being frightened. I'd gone with my mother across the street. And I can still see the door open. It was the screen door was locked. And you open the door and there were all these adults wailing. And it was very scary to me because adults are supposed to pull it together. You know what I'm saying? Adults are supposed to make everything okay. And the adults were losing it. And I thought, okay, this is very scary. Um, but, but that experience and my great-grandfather's experience taught me that death happens. And so particularly, I remember with my family experience, when I started going to more funerals, this great grandfather, this great aunt, you know, this, you know, person at church or whatever, that grief was normal. And I think that the reaction with my family was just, yeah, it's going to be a sucky day. Nobody wants to go to this funeral. Going to go, it's going to be uncomfortable. People are going to cry. But then after it, everyone's going to come back to the church and eat chicken. And they're going to talk about how big you've gotten and ask you what grade you're in. And it becomes sort of a community celebration. And not only is it like a reunion, but it's a then life goes on. Not that you forgot grandpa, you know, back in the cemetery, but that you take advantage of everything that that um, instance and and that uh, celebration or um, that thing has to offer. And so I think I it was very instructive because in the book I talk about this couple year period where so many people in my life and in Scott's life and then unfortunately then Scott died this is the anniversary the eight-year anniversary of my father's death Mm. so um Mm. today so um and also Michael Jackson's death um so it's it's a whole day this day is but um I think that those early experiences understanding that grief was something that you talked about and that you know you, if you are of a Christian faith, you understand that death is something not like you welcome it, but that something good, good things happen after death. And obviously many other faith traditions outside of the one I was raised in have that as well. So be that as it may, you really want the person here, rather they be here with you right now. But it wasn't like passe, like, oh, so-and-so died, you know, cook another sausage. It right. was like, 
these things happen and this is what we do as a community to collectively help each other through this moment. So it was, to me, it was very healthy. You know, it's interesting. I ask this question every time and you're one of the first guests that I've had on the show that really reflect a kind of honest, open, um, healthy, early learning about what grief is. I think for so many people, it was sort of don't talk about it, don't talk about your person, whatever the experience might be. So um, I think that's really interesting and instructive that that was a part of your family's culture. And perhaps maybe grief is never easy. Grief is always hard. But I always say that our grief experience is often made worse because of all the bad learning or sort of the... culture that we have, but it sounds like for you, um, you were sort of supported and nurtured early on in your life to understand grief as a normal response to loss and that your Mm -hmm. expressions and experiences are, you know, beautiful even, you know, are are appropriate. Absolutely. And that when I watching, like I said, the adults in the house, when this little girl across street from me died, that I was not to be scared by adults expressing emotion and that you know, watching my aunts or my mother or my grandmother, or whatever, be sad in these moments rather than be frightened that they were not completely in control at that moment, understand that this is normal. And that um, my aunt died, who I was very close to when I was in my early 30s. Um, my aunt Anne had, um, had uh, cancer for a long time. And when she died, she died the year after I moved here. And we had been living with this possibility. So we go mm-hmm. to the funeral and my mother, they were what was referred to as Irish twins. They're basically like 11 months apart. They're very close in age. And my mother gives the family eulogy and she's talking and she's talking. And I lean over to my sister and I go, how is she doing this? How is she able to be funny and smart and kind and, you know, gives this proper moment, which is very much my aunt and who she was. Because I don't think I'd be able to talk if anything happened to my sister. And my mother said, you would do it. Now, what's funny, at Scott's funeral, I didn't speak. So I'm like, I can't do this. I spoke at my dad's funeral. And we sang at my grandfather's funeral. We sang, it is well with my soul. And before Mm. I got up, I whispered to my aunt, it's a lie. It is not well with my soul. (laughs) It's not well with (laughs) Yeah, not well. Nothing, not well, not a thing, but, but, um, yeah, just having these moments and realizing that my mother, for instance, drawing strength or my, when my grandfather died, um, my father's father, my father gave this beautiful speech about how my grandfather disproved the myths about black men and black fathers. Um, My grandfather, who was a man with an eighth grade education from segregated, segregated, um, Crossit, Arkansas, um, who got married and moved to Maryland and like so many um, army veterans, you know, joined the um, the federal workforce and wound up becoming a, he started working at Andrews Air Force Base and actually got a civilian medal of, of valor for turning off the gas line to a Jeep that was leaking mm-hmm. that was going to explode. And he was amazing and watching my father talk about this. And I'm like, once again, how do you do that? I don't understand. I don't get it. And this is you know, 20, it was 1995. Okay. So, you know, and so going forward and talking to my dad's funeral and then choosing not to talk at Scott's funeral. Um, Cause I, I didn't want to, and enough people did that for me. It was fine. But all of those people 
who said it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to be sad. No one's expecting you to have stiff upper lip. I just didn't think I'd have anything to say that was not. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Well, what, what a beautiful um, reminder that everybody gets to sort of navigate their grief differently in terms of memorializing and celebrating and how you do that. And that your family really modeled a way of doing that. That's they did. beautiful. And that you also felt supported in your choice to not speak at Scott's service, even though you had seen a legacy in your family of people speaking too. Yeah. I was like, I I had nothing to prove. Yeah. I was like, cause I said to my sister, I said, she said, do you want to speak? And I said, do you think anyone's going to be mad at me if I don't? She goes, of course not. I said, then no. Exactly. I made the same choice. I did not speak at Eric's um, funeral at his memorial service. I just couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but again, I also like you had family who didn't even question. They were like, of course, you know, of course not. Um, so, well, we've talked about your dad and let me just take a moment to say, tell me your dad's name. Ed. Ed. Well, let's just welcome Ed into this conversation too and honor him since today is a day of remembering of Ed, although every day is a remembering of Ed. Although as his family knew him, Butch, which is a long story, Butch um, (laughs) was was his family. It was so funny when we would go places where people didn't know him, they only knew their business and they go, so how's Ed? I'm like, who? Oh, okay. (laughs) Oh, gotcha. Butch. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you for bringing Butch into this yes. into our conversation today and for sharing some beautiful memories about him and his life and the impact on you. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'd love to um, switch gears a little bit and hear from you a little bit about... Um, who Scott is yeah, life and how you guys came to be in each other's life. And, and a little bit just to the degree that you want to share a little bit about what that loss experience was like. And I'm on a mission with reimagining grief and with this mm-hmm. podcast to normalize us talking about death and mm-hmm. loss and the honest mm-hmm. experiences of grief. And I recognize we live in a very voyeuristic culture that has a lot of sort of reality TV shows. So this mm. isn't an invitation for us to be voyeurs in your life. It's to no. help um, people start to be more comfortable feeling that they can openly and honestly talk about um, the hard things in life. So that's just sort of the backstory to me asking oh, you this question. I appreciate it. And I mean, literally in my book cover, it talks about my tendency to overshare. So um, I'm, I'm cool with it. Okay. Um, okay. That, that, that's what I do. But yeah, so Scott Mitchell Zervitz um, was a giant goofball. Um, he was a scholar hidden behind the visage visage of a um, sports dude who always wore a jersey. He had a dr- dress jerseys, sleep jerseys, casual jerseys. He always had a jersey. Um, people underestimated him. I think when they met him, because he just seemed like this dude down at the, at the bar doing this thing and he didn't even drink. Usually, um, he was just, he did that in his twenties. Like, ah, oh, my liver doesn't want me to do this anymore. So he was just, he was one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. He knew so much, but he did not lead with that. He did. He made people feel comfortable. I have a friend who we used to go to polo with because I would cover it and there would be usually celebrities, somebody singing the national anthem, that kind of thing. So we go to polo and hang out and laugh about these two being these two kids from Baltimore hanging out at polo. And I had a friend who said that he loved Scott because Scott would stand with him 
and basically talk about how remarkable it was that us, these people from Baltimore, this guy, this dude from Austin, uh, my friend TA, that we were just kind of all hanging out there. How did we get here? Um, is that line from that thing you do? How did you get here? I led you here, sir, for Ion Spartacus. I will mention that thing you do in every answer if you don't stop me, by the way. Oh, you're, you, you go, you go. I will do it. I will do it. It's literally in the the dedication to Scott and Brooks is a line from that thing you do because that's just where my brain goes. So anyway, um, Scott was very pop culture oriented. He also loved long books about presidential history. He, um, in our New York Times wedding announcement, discussed his hallway business, which was gambling in the hallway. Um, and, and his mother was like, did you have to mention it? He goes, yes, I did. Because it, it, it came out the day we got married. It was on a Sunday in Palm Beach. So somebody comes over with the, with the paper and they give it to his mother. And his mother's like, oh my God, you know, for, you know, Jewish mother from Baltimore, her son's announcement being in the New York Times is the pinnacle. And she looks at it and she goes, uh-huh, uh-huh, come on. He's like, sorry, it's it's a thing I did. Um, he was very generous um, to everyone who knew him. I was always after him, particularly sometimes when things were tight. We had a, you know, there were some times between jobs for him. There was a moment in 2011 where he was looking for a job and he was still saying to his friends, here's 50 bucks. I'm like, no, there's not 50 bucks. <laughs> what are you doing? Say or, that. Uh, what are we doing? He was that guy and he said, we have a roof over our head. The lights are still on. We have food in our cupboard. We're going to be okay. And mm. then he went on to very great success after that. But I, I believe that a lot of that, I don't, not like I'm a person who believes that only good things happen to good people and only bad things happen to bad and that you can't work your life. And then something crappy happens like they happen with the two of us. But right. I do, I do think that he saw we are taken care of and these people really need us and they need this. And he was just that guy. He was um, the biggest sports fan in the world. It, I got him to like some of my reality shows because there was always usually like a Dancing with the Stars. Yeah. There was always usually some sort of football player. <laughs> and, I, and I would say, Scott, who's Antonio Brown? He would go, Pittsburgh Steelers, whatever, whatever. You know? And he was really good. He would watch it for at least the first couple, couple of episodes because it was like, well, I'll sit this and watch this movie with a show with my wife that's dumb. Um, I forget who it was. There was some show, there was one season where there was someone he really liked and someone he didn't like. It was like a rustler. And then, no, it it was the, it was the year that, um, uh, Randy, um, Couture, the MMA fighter was on and there was someone that year that he, that Scott did and like and he was hoping he goes is Randy Couture gonna beat him up like no that's not how it works no one dancing with the stars beats anybody up there's it's, no West Side Story choreographed dancing da, 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 scenes right okay I think I think we've just pitched a show by the way for Dancing with the Stars for next season where they yes. just have to do scenes from West Side Story Okay. Yes. Or the on the, the the scene in on the town where they're coming in with the um fighting with their whites on. Yes, I love yeah. that stuff. Anyway, okay. <laughs> so yes. Yeah. So anyway, Scott was just fun to be around. If I can say anything negative about him, is that like most people, he did not understand how wonderful he is and what was mm. and is and was. And when he was in moments like we all have with self doubt or like those moments 
sequence where, you know, between that couple months where he was looking for work, where you have this thing that society does to men that says that yes. you are what you do. And if you don't have that, there's something wrong with you. And he had a lot of anxiety about that because he was always the person that supported everybody. And I mean, I was 38 when I re-met him. I met him in high school and then re-met him again 20 years later. I have been single most of my life, you know, and have been single now again, unfortunately, for the last five years. So I'm used to being and thriving without a partner. So I kept saying to him, listen, I don't need you to do that. I know you want to, and I love that you want to take care of me, but I don't need you to take care of me. I will take care of you if I have to. And uh, we will, and we took care of each other in every way that that was imaginable. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love how you recount in the book the sort of re-meeting of Scott and he's coming to visit anyways in Palm Beach and sort of the rediscovery of your um, connection and your initial maybe sort of resistance to to his, to, he wooed you, girl. He did. And he wooed you. And he has ruined me for any man ever, unfortunately, because when you have that, because I I said, you know, that I, I talk about, there's a line about the, you know, sort of the fortress that his assurance has made for me because he was so sure and having not had that having had as the lady on the millionaire matchmaker says a bad picker Mm, mm. for most of my life having and saying well you like me enough today right now you said you did write it you wrote it down I'm gonna hold you to that you know having that as a standard which is not a standard at all um and not really understanding how awesome I was yeah. and how awesome I should be um, when this man shows up and says to me everything I wanted to hear. And I liked him too. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Um, and it wasn't something I'm used to. So now, I mean, I had a relationship about three years ago. Yeah. But three years ago, it wasn't ever going to go anywhere, but you know, I got too attached to the person and I always knew that person was a flight risk and did, you know, eventually do that um because I knew they weren't going to stay a long time anyway but I remember saying when they sort of drifted back to my life sort of like hey can we be friends or whatever and I said the reason I realized that we were never going to work is because I can't be a priority to you and I had someone who made me a priority mm. and I will never I will never again invest in someone who is not able to do that um so there you go that's amazing. And absolutely, you should be somebody's priority. And you were. What a gift that you were. I know. It was really great. Uh, um, tell me a little bit about, you know, everybody who comes on the show. And of course, as you said earlier, everybody's great loss, death, you know, the loss from a death is a different experience. Some people have, you know, a long time. Some people, it's very sudden. And for, for you, it was, for you, losing Scott was so very sudden. It was. How, how do you... If you want to tell us a little bit about what happened, folks can read about it in the book. But I think more importantly, my question to you is, given that his loss was so sudden, how do you think that has shaped maybe your early grief or how you sort of are navigating this time of making understanding or making meaning of that because of its suddenness? Well, I think it's been almost, it'll be five years next month. I think now at this point, those um, differences are not as profound, Yes, but I think certainly in the beginning, it's just because, I mean, there's no, you, when you lose someone, you lose someone and it's bad either way, but like, right. There was no preparation. I didn't have any preparation for, for this. Like when my dad had been ill, we knew he was dying. We knew he was going to die. And so 
there at least was some, you know, housekeeping stuff. Like we knew where the, the, you know, box, the keys to the safe deposit box were, and we'd made sure my mother made sure that the wills and all those stuff were, things were very up to date. So you had time to do that. Um, but because of the fact that Brooke, that Scott and I had lost so many people, we had talked about these things. So we had not a lot, but we had some life insurance, you know, yeah, we yeah. had, um, through my job and there was life insurance in Scott's name. Um, we had talked about like, what kind of funeral would you want? What kind of this? And that was helpful in the days that you cannot emotionally connect. So you have to do the stuff and everyone right. around was helping you do find the insurance policies, call the uh, funeral home, what do we bury him in, all that kind of thing. So I had some vague idea. Okay, I know he'd want something sports-related. I know we buried him in his Brooks Robinson jersey. And my Love son is Brooks Robinson. So he felt like he was buried with a little bit of, of our son with them, and that was really neat. And he was buried in his Raven slippers, and I broke up one of his good suits, unfortunately. He would be mad about that. <laughs> I, I put him in dress pants. Dress I pants mean, and I, a... This is the compromises we make as wives. It's, it's what we do. And so having the checklist of things was incredibly helpful. And also having, I cannot um, emphasize enough how important it was to have so many people that just swooped in. Like my sister, I think he died probably three, four in the morning. My sister was in my living, in my living room by 1130 that morning. Wow from Baltimore, wow. that when she got the call, she turned to her husband and said, hand me, hand me the credit card. I have to go buy a ticket to go see my sister. And um, my mother was there by one, you know. And, you know, that night, my friend Melanie, the one who I did the fireball shots with, she, yes. was, she was in my house. I remember, like, wandering into my living room. I was like, what? <laughs> and there she was. And the next day, my friend Nikki was there. And just people just, like... Swooped in. We just swooped in and showed up. And the fact that I had this group of people that said, I will pick people up from the airport. And I would say, like, years later, how did you get there? And they would say, oh, so-and-so, who I never met, came to get me. Or um, I took a cab because I got there at the same time as this other person. Yeah. And we we all came together. And so when I got married, my sister, if you ever meet her, you would love – Black Disney Princess um, is tells a story about when I got married the day before the wedding around five o'clock before the rehearsal dinner I handed her my phone and I said I bequeath this to you I'm done planning anything I'll have nothing to do right now but be pampered and have fun and get married so if anything anybody has any questions or you need to make stuff work like Tim Gunn you make it work I'm out <laughs> you know yeah people are, People were calling my phone going, so where's the church? And it's like, oh my why are you calling the bride? You're like, Literally, I'm the bride. Yeah. I tell you nothing. You get that that's a uh, Willy Wonka, G, uh, Gene Wilder uh, gift. Yes. Yes. Nothing. yes. nothing. Good day, sir. Yeah, that's how I felt. I said good moment. day to you. I said good day. <laughs> yes, that's how, that's how I feel. And so at the funeral, I had people who took over and just showed up and did stuff. And they were like, she's not going to care if she does. Who cares? We did it. <laughs> I was like, you're yeah. very right yeah. about that. Cause the only thing I wanted was my husband back and they couldn't do that. If you could pull that off, I don't really yeah. care. Doesn't matter. I, Everything I else is relevant. I don't care who brought the chicken. You know, I, I don't care who took aunt so-and-so I don't, it doesn't, did she get there? Is, is there chicken? Yeah. Okay. 
that's fine. Yeah. Well, and the only things that you did care about were the things that Scott had already told you before his death that mattered to him about kind of certain qualities about, yes. you know, the funeral and you were able to take care of that. And so everything else is irrelevant and people get, I had that similar experience. People were mm. asking me questions and I was just like, I don't, this, yeah, I don't, none of that matters to me. I wasn't planning that. None um, of it matters. And I will no. tell you that I found as a widow, it's one of the few moments where nobody contradicts you. Yes. Where you and, and if you, if you, can evoke a little guilt in the name of your dead partner it really works i mean i would say things like he wants a closed casket i know this he told me he doesn't want to be cremated he doesn't want that expensive ridiculously priced um casket that looks like a uh, a cadillac he told me he wanted a plain pine box we discussed that stop trying to run up the prices oh the funeral industry funeral industry stop Mm -hmm. trying to run me at a yeah. freaking, you know, in the worst moment of my life, the day of, and they're like, well, what about this? And so his cousin, Kenny was with me. And so Kenny's a dude. So he's like, well, this one's really slick. That's yeah. really great. I really like that one. And my friend Sean is behind me going, Scott wanted, he goes, she said, Scott was very serious about being Jewish and the implications of ashes to ashes, dust to dust. He understood the elements and what that meant. This yes. is what he wanted. And she was very tall. So she said this to the funeral guy, like, and, and we have spoken now we are done. You know? Yeah. Love it. Oh, it was oh. great. I, w- I think I f- hope for everybody who has to be in that unfortunate situation of being in that, in that conversation and making those decisions about cremation and funeral and, and coffins that they have, that they can draw on the strength of that story that you just told us and have certainty about it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think the thing that you brought up, Leslie, I think which is really important is the degree to which you guys had had those conversations because mm-hmm. you had faced other losses. I know he had lost some people in his family and you mm-hmm. had too, is just another reminder for all of us, no matter how old you are, we need to start having these conversations with our family members before, you know, so that because while all those decisions are heartbreaking and painful and the experience of losing someone is hard, it's made just a little bit easier when you don't have to also wonder, is this what they would have wanted? Absolutely. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. So later in the show, you're going to hear Leslie and I rail against the stupid things people have said to us in our grief. And I get it. I know it's hard to know what to say sometimes. That's why I created a line of empathy cards that helps you find language when you're at a loss for words. So after the show today, head over to reimagininggrief.com and pick out your favorite cards so you have them available when you need to show up for someone in their grief. And you just kind of said that about you get to kind of claim the marker of widow. And yes. and sometimes, um, which is, of course, a thing, is which is, I just wrote about this the other day at Reimagining Grief, which is a t- because we just passed International Widows Day, which is a thing mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. a club that none of us want to be in. Nope. Um, but I'd love to read to you in your from your book. Is it weird if I read your own words back No, to you? do it. Okay. Do it. But there's a couple of... Well, there's so many passages that I mark, but I'd love to start exploring a little bit about um, 
the quality of this particular type of loss about being a widow and about the shift in roles. There are two passages in the book about that widowhood that I think if for those of you who are widows and listening, you will be nodding your head like I did when I was reading the book. And for those of you who aren't, but maybe have a widow on your life, I hope uh, Leslie's words will help illuminate for you kind of the experience and the confusion and the heartache of that experience of being a widow. So at one point in your book, you were sort of talking about this title and the reality of being it. And you said, I was with Scott for a lot longer than three weeks. And I don't think I'm being unreasonably dramatic here, but I'm still afraid of being too much, of doing too much of bumming everyone out with my inconvenient sadness. I don't want to be the widow who's a burden. I don't want to be the widow at all, but I'm never not going to be a widow. Leslie, when I read that, I literally think I could have got whiplash because I was nodding my head so big. I think you really spoke truth to the world about the complications of feeling so much, of grieving so hard, and at the same time, the pressures that we have to be happy and to be okay and to perform into our okayness and that we somehow are a burden to people in our grief. Well, and it's as a woman and as a mom, you know, you learn, I just had a discussion with a friend of mine this morning, my friend Libby, about how women from the womb probably are socialized not to be a bother and to overly explain things to people when you say no. And I love this thing that says no is a complete sentence. Yes. But we're not yes. raised to believe that. And I think that as a woman in that moment that I'm writing about, it's really about what you are socialized to be, which is not a bother, not too much. Yeah. Not any not an inconvenience. And I think at, at that moment, first of all, this awful thing happened to you. You get to be a little inconvenient because you were inconvenient. Yeah. <laughs> so I think you exactly to do exactly. that. But you could I could feel the yes. energy drain from a room when I walked into a room in the three months, six months, whatever. Oh, people yeah. go, Oh, oh, it's her. And it's well, you're having a really great day, right? And then you're you got out of bed and you felt really good, and then someone walked up to you and they cover you and they're oh, and you're like, Well, I'm just going back oh, to bed now yeah. because it's all it's ruined now. Thank you. Any sort of momentum I had to feel better about myself today is ruined because of this. Absolutely. People didn't people don't even have to say a word. I do remember those early years when my friends would sort of, you know drag me into a restaurant or to a room or to a party. And I could just feel the energy drain with the look or the sigh or the, or that people wouldn't make eye contact, by the way, no. it was also that kind of energy. So I think um, just, I appreciate the way you brought that piece to light. And also as you reminded the readers and where you and I are reminding our listeners now, which is you get to cash in that chip. You aren't you too much. You are. You get to feel however you feel. And if other people are uncomfortable, that's their problem, not your problem. It is. And I, I think it also helps because me, pers- you don't, no one before this experience in this book really knew me outside of Palm Beach County, Florida. But those who knew me understood that too much is kind of what I do. <laughs> so, Own it. Kind of a, and I have become more even more too much. I've begun quite way too much. Um, since then, a, because I'm getting older, I think maybe I'm headed into my 
purple uh, purple hat um, yes, yes, situation, yes. red hat society, purple thing, but in a sexy way. And I, I think that I'm just like, life is too short. Being widowed teaches you that you were promised nothing. And so why do you want to, in whatever form you take in your next life, look back and go, I screwed up all the opportunities I had to have fun, to explore, to be as as fun and and adventurous and sexy and brave because I was worried about what people thought of me. Right. Screw that. I'm done with it. That is exactly the lesson of loss and exactly the lesson of widowhood. And I would say you aren't being too much. You are being authentically you. Yes. And I think if we can think about um, the gift in a way, this is a weird word for death loss or any kind of loss, which is the reminder that there is there is no guarantees and to walk around being authentically you. And that means you're going to push back against our cultural weird obsession about happiness being the only emotion that is socially acceptable. So exactly. F that is what I say. F that. And what's so weird about that is that society wants it both ways. They want you to be all these things. And I think we're probably about the same age. So I was exactly 49. Yeah, exactly. We're exactly the same age. So in our twenties, we were taught that anything that was authentic is bleak and anything that is um, sincere or happy is bad unless you don't want to be cool. So there were things I loved that were happy and people were like, no, 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 it's not about the pain and the sadness and the grunge and the whatever and the gangster right. and whatever. I'm like, and I, I loved a lot of that stuff, but also I was like, I also like while you were sleeping because <laughs> she gets to be happy. And honestly, while you were sleeping to me, it's not light. It's a movie about a depressed, lonely woman who tells a lie to find some connection so she doesn't spend Christmas by herself. And then, of course, she gets Bill Pullman at the end, so you shouldn't. she was rewarded for her lie, which I'm fine with. But that it really talked about what it is to be lonely and what it is to, that when she says at the end when she's getting married to Peter Gallagher, who doesn't really know who she is, and she says, I fell in love with you, all of you. She fell in love with having this family and this connection to people. And there is something really profound that in a rom-com, not just the man, but the family was the draw. The motivation yes. was having yeah. a connection to this, this supportive, mm-hmm. wonderful group of people. And I, I think that when we talk about loss and stuff, we really have to consider that it's not just the person you know, that you lose, it's maybe their friends or maybe yes. an easy connection to their family or maybe the, the the clubs that they used to go, people think it's weird and they don't want you around or it's odd or that Absolutely. was the, the connection. So taking time in your life while you are alive to form connection um, is really great. I've become close to members of Scott's family and, and friends of his and stuff. And I've become closer to friends of mine whose friendship changed when I met Scott because we became couple friends yes. and the, and those friends have continued to support me awesome. um, in a beautiful way because, for Scott. And it, it's, it's really kind of great. And I think what you're pointing to there is also kind of about, we have some weird contradictory rules in our culture about like being happy only, but also we have to perform sad. You know, I would mm-hmm. say the flip side about being a widow. I remember the first time I sort of um, laughed out loud. I was by myself. It was three in the morning. I was watching an old episode of The Daily Show and Jon Stewart was still on it. And I was not sleeping because 
you know, we don't sleep in the early mm. days. And mm. I remember John Stewart said something and I laughed out loud and I immediately caught myself. Oh, wow. And then cried. Wow. Because there's this idea that you can't be like that I was wrong for having a happy moment in the yeah. midst of this grief. And so what you're talking about is kind of these cultural contradictions that sometimes hold us prisoners, I think, when we're grieving because we're expected to sort of perform into one emotion or the other, um, you know, depending on what societal rules expect. And in fact, I, I'd love to, uh, you got, I don't know if you love this or hate this, but I'd love to read another passage that you wrote that I think is Please. so beautifully poignant about that very confusion that we face, again, particularly as widows, although I think this could apply to lots of different kinds of losses. And you are talking about sort of the the rules of widowhood. Um, and you say, the thing about being a widow in the 21st century, as opposed to 100 years ago, <laughs> is, that, is that there is no socially accepted mourning period that governs when you can leave the house, how much unflattering black drapery shit you must wear, and for <laughs> how long, or when you get to date, or whatever you want to call it. And I, again, Leslie, literally nodding and laughing and crying my way through this whole book. I just loved that passage because it was such a reminder about like, not only are you just in this grief brain fog and your person yeah. that you love has died, you're constantly sort of fighting against this ambiguity and this uncertainty about how or what you're supposed to say, feel, perform, be, behave. Um, and this is the sort of concern because there's no sort of rules. You know, it used to be no. like you wore black for a year and you didn't leave the house or whatever, depending on your culture, your religion. Mm -hmm. And and we're having to sort of make up our own rules at a time and and yeah, feel like did you have any in the early days of after losing Scott, did you have any sort of overt interactions with people where they sort of called you on how you were sort of quote unquote performing your grief well, or you know what it was? I felt like society doesn't have set rules that are right but they'll tell you if they're wrong they'll they'll they're certainly yes. waiting for you to tell you if you're wrong so it was more like um just a feeling I got like feeling like I was going back to work too soon mm. I had to yeah. you know go back or people saying well are you well you obviously you want to move immediately and I go, no, I, I don't want to move yet. I mean, I still felt him in the house. You know, we moved about six months later, my mom and Brooks and I. But people, the of courses are what makes me want to slap people. Oh, People go, yes. well, well, of course you'll move. Or of course you don't want to move. Well, of course. So people saying, so you'll be moving back to Baltimore, right? Like, I know my mother's moving here. She literally already has a lease and then she moved, broke it and moved it with us. But people just deciding what I was going to do. And I've always been resistant. I'm that stubborn child mm -hmm. who will stand on, you know, the ledge and go, no, I'm doing it the way I want. I know that I'm going to fall off, but it's because I, I choosing it. I'm choosing it. <laughs> choosing. You know, I'm that awful person, but it, it, I love that people said these things out of concern, out of love and out of maybe their own experiences. It's also out of their own. I think what well, a lot of the yes. stupid things that people say to us in our grief is because they're seeing themselves reflected in our, in our story and it feels really painful. So they say things that I'm sure they think are trying to make 
us feel better, but it's really about making them feel better. Does that resonate for you? Oh, no, absolutely. It makes them, and I think that's part of when I go into like the things that people say to you. Yeah. It's that. I mean, I, one of my best friends, very best friends in the whole world, was one of my college roommates. And she and my friend Patty, who's also one of my roommate, came down um, for the funeral. And we saw them at the funeral, cried, whatever. I talk about Patty having like the cry face. Yes. Like, ah, ugly cry. So <laughs> they come to the house after. And then the next day, they were flying out. They were there for two nights. They stayed in the same hotel room. They were flying out back to D.C. the next day. And they both live in Montgomery County, Maryland. And rather than, they called me to make sure I was okay. And I thought they were going to come over. But of course, there were lots of people in the house and they're not really there. There may have been something extra in my coffee. I'm going to just be honest. I probably, <laughs> hey. I think it, at noon, I think, the, I was like, is it noon yet? And the bourbon yeah. went into the coffee. It happened. I'm, I'm not sorry. It's what I do. I'm not a drunk. It's just the what it was. So I wouldn't drive in. So anyways, so I'm calling them. Oh, they come to the house. They come to the house. And finally, they called me and said... <laughs> we were going to come see you, but we wound up at the breakers, which is the fancy hotel on Palm beach. And we wanted to, cause both of us have kids and husbands and we never get to be without them. And we're both all both really sad. And so we went and got Manny Petties and I went, yes, yes. Hell yes. Hell yes. Get Manny Petties. And, and they said, can you come? And they said, we wanted you to come with us. And I said, I can't, cause literally there's people in my house. I can't like, yeah. in the middle. And my mother, my mother said to me later, you really should have gone. You really should have gone. <laughs> Cause I, I had dropped someone off. It was the first time I was driving. I was dropping someone off the airport and my mother texted me and said, go to Palm beach and, and hang out with your friends. And I was like, I can't cause there's too yeah. many people. So then also yeah. because I, w- I didn't want to get there and then have a sad, but I'm going to be useless and screw up everybody's day. But Anne said to me, when we had a girls weekend in a, but the next year that she felt that she had not been as attentive because her oh. husband and Scott were the same age. And I said, I never got that. I thought you were one of the most int- attentive. You bought a plane ticket. You call me every week. You always check in on me. You're always looking out for me. So I didn't feel that at all. There, it was, and I, did you have this experience that the people that were super attentive sometimes were surprising and the people who ghosted on you were surprising? 100%. I talk about that all the time. I'm so glad you brought that up. It is, and it's weird because like there were friends of Scott's who I was never particularly close to, but who just, and were having their own grief and guilt and that kind of thing. And yeah. just, I had to reach out to that guy and I resented that I was the guy, the person I had to reach out. I'm the widow. You should reach out to me. Right. And, and, and he shows up occasionally, but it's not a thing. And I learned, okay, this is not, I thought this would be a person that collectively we would, we would grieve together. This is not that guy. And I hope he's okay. Scott's best friend, Jason, who's in the book, who was like, write yes. about Scott and make him who he, tell people who he is. Jason and I used to talk every day. We text every day um, because he used to text Scott every day. So Scott was the person, and now I've inherited Jason <laughs> in that. And he's really beautiful. And he said to me, cause we're moving back to, to Baltimore. Um, he said, I, I'm so honored. It's going to make me cry a little bit. He said, I'm so honored to be the person that is going to be Brooks's sports person that I'm mm-hmm. going to take him to games when there's games again, and I'm going to throw a ball with him and I'm going to tell him about, you know, people you should like and people you don't like, and I'm going to be that guy. And I'm so honored. Oh, you know, and I didn't expect that. I mean, I knew we were going to stay close, but I didn't expect that 
he was going to say, I mean, my Melanie, my, my friend's husband, Josh, has become, he's kind of quiet. So he and Scott liked each other, but they were never really close because they didn't really say a lot. They basically would watch a game together, which stood there. Yeah. <laughs> and right. they're watching the game. As you guys know, do. As guys do. So they never got real close, but he has been so amazing with Brooks and he has two daughters and a wife. So he's outnumbered in their home. Um, <laughs> so when, when, when Brooks comes over, they sit in the den and watch TV. They watch star Wars together and they hang out and he is delighted that Brooks is going to be around because he can show him some stuff that his daughters weren't interested in. And I'm like, okay, I'm cool with it. I'm down with it. You're listening to grief is a sneaky bitch. And, you know, we started this particular part of the conversation talking about kind of the stupid things people say. And, <laughs> and again, about, you know, of course, it comes usually from a good place, not a not a malicious place. But I'm going to read another passage just because this was so quintessential. And I'll tell you a little bit about why I loved it so much. You said you were sort of talking about people showing up and the fake smiles and the different things and the, mm-hmm. you know you know, I'm sorry for your loss statements that people say, which is a pet peeve of mine, but we can do that another day. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) Um, But you said, what isn't helpful is any suggestion, especially in the first day or so, that Scott is now an angel or that he is in a better place (laughs) or that as one person writes, Scott has completed his cycle on earth. Gross. I love when you're just like, it was a complete sentence. Gross. It was uh, gross. It was gross. And, and the actual the actual quote was Scott had completed, and I they, it got changed somehow. But yeah. Scott has completed his cycle around the sun, which sounds oh. even worse. Which oh. sounds even worse because it's like it's. I was like, oh, I was very, very sad that my partner and 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 co parent and love of my life died. But it's just the cycles of the sun. Now that makes so much sense. I'm fine now. I'm fine. It's great. Hey. Thank you for clarifying my the error of my ways, you know? Again, I mean, if a part of me, I do this show for a lot of reasons and I um, do work for, you know, I do coaching, grief coaching one-on-one and I write all the time. Um, but one of the re- things I try to do with all of my work is really to help not just griever, people who are grieving feel validated and normal in their grief because our grief culture sucks so bad. But I'm also trying to use conversations like ours to remind those people who are very well-meaning and trying to show up Mm -hmm. for someone in their grief Mm -hmm. to sort of check yourself at the door and to check your intentions before you show up. And that probably less is more showing up. I say show up, shut up, and listen. That's my sort of grief support motto. Um, Because Mm -hmm. when you don't, you say stupid shit. I'm just going to say, <laughs> you say stupid shit like that, you know? In fact, I had so many stupid things people said to me um, that when I decided to launch a line of empathy cards last year, because I was sick of the ridiculous empathy cards that mm-hmm. were out there, I still have the box. I don't know about you, but I still have the box of cards that people sent me almost nine years ago now. Mm-hmm. And I went through them a while ago and was just getting more and more pissed off reading the messages that were on there. And so while most of my empathy cards are lovely and, you know, like beautifully written, I mean, they're all beautifully written, but one of them was really addressing the stupid things because I wanted the griever to know that I know that you're being harmed when people show up and say these stupid things. So Mm -hmm. one of my my cards says, uh, when people tell you time heals all wounds and he's in a better place now and, you know, you'll find love again and, you know, all the, I picked like my top five 
favorite, least favorite things people mm-hmm. say. On the inside of the card, it says, I promise to punch them in the fucking face for you. Yes. Yes. Just right in the freaking kisser. Right, right in, in it. Like just, I got your back. You don't even have to, you don't have to say thank you or tell them why they're stupid for saying that. I got you. I got your back. Um, Cause I think it's important for all of us who are um, going through grief to not, I think sometimes those statements are harmful because then they make us feel like, am I not entitled to feel bad? Like yes. you were just describing, like when they say, oh, he's completed a circle cycle around the sun. What is that supposed to do for you? Except for to make you, to invalidate how you feel. And it makes them feel better. It makes them feel better because it says, well, this makes sense to me. I just, look, I've solved this for you. I've made sense yeah. of it for you. Oh, people want to fix you. People they want to fix, fix you, you and they want to fix it so they can go back. It's like, can we go back to um, why night now? It's game night and you ruin game night by being, yes. you and your sadness have ruined everything. And why can't you just be fun like Cynthia? She's great. Nobody in her family died today. Just, exactly. You know. <laughs> You're a downer now. Yeah, they do that. They want to fix you or or sometimes they want to compete with you. I call that being a grief thief. I don't know if you've had that experience. Mm. I, I do know in your book, you sort of talked about somebody who sort of showed up in your life. And I think you yes. you said something like, now she's thrown her hat into the pain competition ring. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, oh, and I, people. Oh, and again, I think for the most part, I can't speak for everybody. Some people are just, some people is dicks, as I like to yes, say. They is dicks. I got that. I got that expression from a friend's neighbor. But um, I think though most people's intentions are good, because they want to show you that they can relate, they inadvertently, what people don't realize, so I'm saying this again to the listeners who are trying to show up for someone who's grieving, is you then change the focus to be about you Mm. and not about the person you're supposedly showing up to support and attend to. So while I do think there's, like you and I started this conversation today on the podcast, talking about how nice it is to speak to somebody who has it a shared experience because you can start in chapter two, there's a place and a space to understand when it's not time to share your story. And I think that's especially true when you're showing up for somebody who's early in their grief. Yep, absolutely. And just right now, this, you know, conversation we're having in the country about um, our reckoning with, with race and racism, what it's done to us and what's done is mostly because we tried to, well, not me, I couldn't pretend, but other people, pretended that it didn't exist, is that there's a discussion with allies about trying to actively avoid centering yourself. Exactly. And it's it relates to what you said. When you center yourself in other people's grief, and like you say, I am the star of this show, so I'm going to go into this thing as the star of the movie, and Stacey's grief is periphery. It's the scene that's set, and I'm going to, you know judge everything by how it makes me feel and then leave. Stacy gets that and you just are useless and you should just stay the hell home. Um, exactly. if you, if you are not willing to say in this, if you cannot make things about the family of the person who died for five minutes, I don't know why you're bothering. I don't know why you can't do that. I'm sorry for your loss. Uh, not, I'm sorry that reminds me of my own mortality not i'm sorry that it reminds me i i didn't get stuff checked and i should have gotten it checked or it reminds me that i never made up with fill in the blank it's, or i know you, somebody who had this thing happen to them and let me tell yes. you their story oh my god oh. i just and and it was so funny i have a friend i don't see her a lot but she had a one-two punch that the two central figures in her life her dad and her dog died 
right around the same time. Yeah. Right around the same time Scott did. And I saw her at a bar class, which she's a beautiful, tall ex-dancer, and I am not. And she came over to me and she started crying. She said, I felt stupid crying about my dog. And I said, everyone who knows you knows that your dog was one of the central figures of your life. Why yeah. would I feel bad? You're not comparing it. You're just saying this happening. Your dad, who was your rock, these two beings loved you and were central to you. I would never be that. Because that's an expression of grief that is normal. It's not the people saying, oh, it's like when my dog died when I was 12. No, it's not. No, no actually, not, not at all. Or it's like when my boyfriend broke up with me. No, it's not. He's still alive. Um, you know, all these weird things. It's like, it, you don't have to relate. I think the, the conversation with, about race is that people have to make it make sense to them. Yeah. To feel bad. Why can't you just be empathetic? Why can't you just say, I'm sorry this happened to you? In the last couple of days, one of the things that's been really bubbling up for me, and you talk about it a little bit in your book, is the quality of anger being mm. overlooked in the conversations around grief, particularly anger at the person who died. Yeah. And I know kind of later in the book, you talk about um, just sort of, you know, being in therapy and sort of doing some of just starting to sort of address some of the emotions that you have around your grief. And you talk about this sort of little nugget or this gift that your therapist, um, yeah. you know, gave to you, if I can read this passage, because I think Please. this this conversation of, about anger and grief is really important. You remarked when you were saying to your therapist, when is this, when is this going to feel normal again? I ask the therapist, therapy must be working because talking to her about Scott no longer feels like picking off pieces of my skin with a pair of rusty pliers. Mm -hmm. One of the best things she has done for me is to get me to talk about being angry at him for dying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that once again, I, you cannot continue to be angry at a dead person because no. it, it's dumb <laughs> and you can't do it, but you know, cause they can't change they can't give you satisfaction right. in that. I, I think that the difference is that allowing yourself to feel your feelings and name your feelings and say, how can I work to the point where this is, um, where this works and is it like fruitless and there's a point to it is really important. And I think that for too long, particularly women, we're supposed to eat our feelings, both literally and figuratively, which is why <laughs> yeah. I gained weight, and not talk about it because, well, it's not fair to be angry at him because he's not here to defend himself. It's like, but I get to be, because that's how I feel. So I get to talk about, there's a movie from, I think, the early 2000s called The Upside of Anger that Joan Allen was in where her husband mm. leaves her. And it's about this woman who gets divorced in her forties and it's this, it's thrust on her. This, she never wanted to be a single mother. She never wanted to be in these things. She didn't want to be alone. And she reacts in the opposite way. Everyone thinks everyone thinks that she's going to cry and, you know, be delicate and fragile. And she responds by being a raging bitch to everybody. And it's something really beautifully, she was not pleasant yeah. But it was something cathartic about that in her grief over her marriage, she embraced perhaps too long, but embraced, this wasn't fair. This should yeah. never have happened to me. This is not my fault. This was a decision that someone else made that changed my life immediately and made me feel as if 
I was a passenger suddenly in a life that I thought I was a driver for, and I don't like it. And while it's like it's it's rude to continue to take that out on people, acknowledging that she didn't feel like crying. She was not a shrinking violet. She was not going to sit in her tower and eat bonbons and watch Hallmark movies and listen to, to Gloria Stefan songs right, about right. not being able to live without you. She was like, F this, I'm mad. And F this, I'm mad. It's like I call it my Lieutenant Dan moment. Where mm. you know, where once again, I'm a pop culture reporter, so the I love these references. I love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. But that moment in Forrest Gump when Lieutenant Dan, whose grief again over his leg, over the military career he was supposed to have had, over the shame he thought he brought to his family, over the loss of what he felt valor was supposed to be, and when he they have the big you know moment on the boat on the shrimp boat where there's this huge storm, and at the end. It's calm again. He's on his back, um, blowing bubbles. And Forrest Gump says, I think he made his peace with God. He did that by telling God how mad he was. He yes. did it by saying, bring this. Let's do this thing. We're here. Let's do this thing. And that's the only way I know how to get things done. It's just to be honest about whatever I'm feeling at that moment. Um, because you, you feel it regardless. You feel it whether you admit it or not. And I think the truth is what you were just saying. It was like, if you don't get it out, it goes inward and we start mm-hmm. turning it on ourselves. And so the kind of the work of grief or however you want to tell, or the journey, quote unquote, <laughs> you know, the work of grief, I think is actually starting to like open up and acknowledge all the feelings, especially the ones that we're not so comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And anger, mm-hmm. anger is often one of them. And it doesn't have to be logical, by the way. Like, who said emotions are logical? No, thanks. So, yes, I agree. Being angry at a dead person um, seems illogical, but there it is. You have a feeling. There, there got, it is. There you it is. The feeling. You yeah. got to feel the feels. Mm-hmm. Um, is there, you know, you, so you spent a couple of years writing this book. You're kind of doing the virtual book tour, as it were, mm-hmm. obviously, because we're in this, we're doing this interview in the, t- in the yeah. time of COVID. But having to sort of talk about it and reflect back, are there things that you learned by the act of writing this book that were particularly, um, you know, aha moments or um, that really sort of shifted the way you're thinking about how you're showing up in the world now, how you are carrying Scott's memory forward, carrying your father's butch's memory forward, et cetera. Is there some I do. I, I think that mostly it's I mean not that I need validation of my feelings, but so many people tell me that I got it right. And that even though we have different grief experiences, unique grief experiences, the fact that we have this sense of like you said, the nodding, the oh that makes sense to me. Oh I get this told me that I got it right and that I I spoke to so many of his relatives who've had a chance to read the book and said, did I get this right? Did I get him right? And they said, I did. And that means so much to Mm. me because he's not here to, to do that. So I had to introduce the world to Scott Zerpitz, which is an honor, man. That's such an honor that you or all these other people know who he is and know his name now, because I told him about them and I, think I, I hope I did a good job. So just the sort of like also the validations of the feelings of the feels, as you said. Yes. Yeah, feeling the feels. Feeling the feels that you were right, that it was okay to be angry and it was okay yeah. to be a little drunk. And it yep. was okay to be not a lot, but a little 
that it was yep. okay to be a little, to feel funny. It was okay to laugh at moments or, or to put my foot down and say, I don't want this, or I do want that, or this yeah. is something that I'm comfortable with or not comfortable with all of these things to find my voice. Because as I said, I think I said this in a book about when you're a single mother, all of a sudden you're where the buck stops, you know, you're the one that makes the decisions about where you live and where the kids go to school and, you know, what backpack they're going to buy and what sport they're going to play or not play, or what instrument they're going to play or not play. And you're the one that is leading those decisions. And, you know, once again, to quote, um, Fiddle on the roof, there was another hand. It's your hand. It's you're the one that's doing it. And you're the only person that can really, you can't second guess yourself. And I've learned not to, by the way. That's yeah. one of the most important things I've learned to do is that I am enough. And my I don't make decisions stupidly. I don't make decisions like this move, for instance. I don't make decisions without a backup plan or without some guidance or some support. I just don't, I, I wouldn't play with my kid's life that way. But at the end of the day, you got to be the one that makes those decisions and you have to feel comfortable. And I think when you stop asking for permission, I think in the beginning, there was a moment where I didn't feel, I wasn't sure of myself at all. So I would say to my mother who's widowed or to other people, does this seem right? Does this feel right? And after a while, I think once as women, once you go from the, I'm asking advice and people understand you're not asking them for permission. Yes. And sometimes there's that abrupt moment where they go, oh, wait, what? Because you said, yeah, thank you for giving me your um, your advice, but I'm not going to do that. And there's almost this like moment that's both about wanting to protect you and also about thinking that you were asking them, not permission, but that you were following their advice because it was so sage. You're like, yeah, Ron, I'm good. Yeah, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm clear on that. Um, but learning that I can't ask anyone permission. I couldn't ask anybody permission to date. I couldn't ask anybody permission to lose weight or not lose weight. I couldn't ask anybody permission to call this book what it is because people would read it and go, oh, you're real candid about that. And I knew there was a judgment in that. I would go, yeah, okay. I loved every single sentence in this book. So Thank you. Thank you. Really. I really did. I I love that. And I love... um, you know, you spoke really beautifully right there to um, kind of finding yourself again, finding a new version of yourself, but that doesn't mean it's at the expense of carrying Scott forward and even carrying Butch forward. I mean, this book was obviously about Scott and his memory. And I think that's the beauty um, that we get to do in telling our stories of grief is that we get to integrate um, and bring forward um, their life into our future. And now so many people are going to know about Scott who already do know about Scott and what he means to you and mm-hmm. um, his love for you and his love and adoration for Brooks um, yeah. is beautiful. And that's like that. I think that storytelling is such a gift. Thank you. I, I'm so excited that I knew I was going to be a writer when I was a little girl and just figuring out like how that was going to be. And I was going to be a journalist since I was like 14. And so I've always, this is the only thing I know how to do. Yeah. So I'm really happy that, not that it's not difficult to write, but it's not that hard for me. Um, yes. I already have the thing. You just, I mean, the doing it, sitting and making yourself do it is really hard because I'm human jazz hands. I'm all over the place. Like, Wah! so making myself focus on that is like, all right, I guess I have to do this. But um, I, I love being given the platform to tell these stories very much. Well, we all 
benefited so greatly from the beautiful way that you told your story, authentically you, honestly, openly, with humor and sadness and anger and all the full, you felt all the feels um, for us in your book and you told it in a way that made us all feel really, well, I'll speak for myself. It made me feel really seen and heard and validated in my own experience as a widow. So I just want to thank you so much for, for writing the book, for agreeing to come on the podcast today for this burgeoning friendship that we have. I'm just incredibly grateful for you and um, wishing you all the best in this next chapter of your story as you take this next step uh, moving back to Baltimore. Thank you so much. Hey there, I have a quick favor to ask you. I'm hoping you love the show and that you'd want to recommend it to a friend. If so, please head over to Apple Podcasts, find the show, then leave a rating and write a review. Not only will it make my day even brighter, it will help other listeners find the show too. Special thanks to Giles Smith of Alafia Sound for creating the music for today's show. I hope you've caught a glimpse of your own story today or learned something new that allows you to show up more fully for the griever in your life, or perhaps that you found language you can use when you're at a loss for words. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefhofer. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.